Hello fellow travelers and welcome to Adventures in Security, episode 52 for September 30th, 2007. And I'm your host, Tom Olczak. You can find the information covered in our episodes at adventuresinsecurity.com on the podcast page. If you're interested in commenting on what you hear or about topics you'd like me to talk about, please send email to podcasts at adventuresinsecurity.com. In this episode, I take a look at some of the top security-related stories from last week, including phishing undercover and how large websites might be exposing your authentication tokens. We'll start with a story about an inexpensive lockable USB memory stick. Data traveling around on memory sticks are vulnerable to compromise through loss or theft. Information on these devices often includes keys, passwords, protected health information, or identities of employees. The trick for organizations that allow the use of these devices is to find a low-cost, easy-to-use, secure solution. The Corsair Flash Padlock USB stick might just be the answer, and that's Corsair, C-O-R-S-A-I-R. The following is from me is from Scott's newsletter, uh, the September 2007 issue. And Scott says, the Flash Padlock currently comes in 1 gig and 2 gig sizes at the list price of $29.99 and $39.99, respectively. I'd love to get one that was at least 4 gig and preferably 8 gig. I sometimes move large sets of software or images around. The business of software reviews is data intensive, but 2 gig handles most of my needs. Flash Padlock contains a small user-replaceable lithium battery that allows the 5-button numeric keypad to work even when the USB stick is unconnected to your computer. In fact, you set your combination, change it, lock the device, and unlock it, all while the stick is removed from your computer. As an aside, um, I read in another related article that the battery is not user-replaceable. So if it's supposed to last about two years, the battery goes, the stick still works, but you have to plug it into the USB device or USB port before you can unlock the stick. So back to Scott's article. This makes total sense. Doing anything else would endanger your USB port and also be awkward. The black case offers five number buttons and a key button. Think of it as enter. There are also two LEDs that light up the locked and unlocked icons. The flash padlock is about 33% thicker than the average USB stick. The added heft accommodates the battery and keypad and is well worth the advantage the hardware security brings. The user interface for the flash padlock is very well thought out. Once you set up your 10-digit combination, the device locks automatically 15 seconds after it's removed from your computer. If you try to reinsert it five minutes later, you'll see the red locked icon display. To unlock it, you remove the device from your computer, press the key button, enter the combination, repress the key button, and the green unlocked icon will flash. Then you can insert it into your computer. If you don't insert it within 15 seconds, it will lock again. So long as the device remains in your computer, it will remain unlocked. The downsides to the flash padlock are few. The stick is a little thicker than the average USB stick, as mentioned. The rest of the dimensions are typical of enterprise-oriented USB sticks. I don't consider the extra size to be a serious drawback, although the device lacks curbside appeal as a result. The stick comes with a removable cap that is sure to be lost sooner or later. 
The biggest shortcoming is that Corsair isn't offering a larger capacity version of the flash padlock. And that's the end of what I had posted from Scott's newsletter. The Corsair device doesn't appear to encrypt the data, it just makes it inaccessible without user-assigned pins, so this isn't something that you'd want to store national defense secrets on, but for most users that are running around with absolutely no protection at all, and for especially for those users who are technologically challenged, this seems like a very straightforward way to help them protect the information they, they'd like to take with them out of the office. The following segment is entitled, Risk Management is Key, and it's from my blog posting of that title. And the blog post is about a new book, which is entitled, IT Risk, Turning Business Threats into Competitive Advantage. And the book underscores the importance of dealing with IT issues within a risk management framework. The following is from a Gartner review of the book. The book was written by Richard Hunter, Group Vice President and Gartner Fellow and Gartner Executive Programs, and George Westerman, research scientist in the Center for Information Systems Research at the MIT Sloan School of Management. It examines how IT risks directly impact business performance and advise business executives on how they can manage IT risk as business risk with business consequences. The authors defined IT risk as a threat to any of the four interrelated business objectives. First, availability. The IT risk associated with availability is really the answer to the question, will a company's IT systems and business processes continue running, and will they recover from interruptions? The second business objective is access. Do the right people in an organization have access to the data and systems they need to do their jobs? Are the wrong people blocked from access to those data and systems? Next, accuracy. Can a company's IT systems be relied on to provide correct, timely, and complete information that meets the requirements of management, staff, customers, suppliers, and regulators? And finally, agility. Do the organization's IT systems possess the capability to change if the company acquires another firm, completes a major business process, redesign, or launches a new product or service? No enterprise can be completely free of IT risk. Like any other risk, IT risk is something to be managed, not eliminated, Mr. Hunter said. Management means making trade-offs between risk and return, between the perils a company can bear and the risk it would rather avoid. But until now, business managers have lacked the tools and disciplines to manage IT risk in these ways. Mr. Hunter introduced three disciplines in the book that enterprises must master to manage IT risk effectively. The first, a solid foundation of IT assets, people, and supporting processes, and controls that enable executives to manage the right risks in the right order. Second, a well-designed risk governance structure and process, integrating IT risk management into every business decision to identify, prioritize, and track risks. And finally, a risk-aware culture, nurtured from the top, that attunes people to the causes and solutions for IT risks that increases vigilance across the organization. According to Hunter, these disciplines are complementary. Together they aim to improve risk management capability and giving businesses and IT people a language to ensure that IT risks stay under control. Enterprises should choose their focal discipline based on their culture, their circumstances, and their capabilities 
but ultimately they must be competent in all three. The most dangerous risks are the ones that are never considered or considered too late, Mr. Hunter said. Executives need to look to the future. IT risk management is working the way it should when it is simply part of the way the company does business. This article, entitled CIOs Must Manage IT Risk as Business Risk, according to the Gartner MIT book, appeared on 20 September 2007 on TechRati website. Returning from the world of fishers, Jason Harbert shares the result of his research in the inner workings of the fishing community, including fishers being scammed by other fishers, in this next segment, Fishing Undercover. This segment is based on an article that appeared on 21 September 2007 in eWeek entitled, Going Undercover in the Slimy World of Fishing. The following is from that article. The research scientist for CloudMark recently spent weeks monitoring the fishing community's chat rooms and forums, learned the lingo, earned some trust, and even received kits from the fraudsters who set up scam pages that steal victims' personal data. Then he went and hurt the criminal's feelings after not coming through on the spam delivery. But he did come out of the experience with extensive data and insight on every aspect of the underground marketplace, including how the attacks are orchestrated and how phishing kits work, including their structure, so-called brain files, and even new pyramid schemes linked to the spread of the kits. After weeks of undercover research into the phishing community, CloudMark contends that the availability of these automated phishing kits, costing between $10 or $20, has made it a breeze for novices to start up operations and has caused a sharp rise in phishing attacks. Harbert described the phishing community as being made up of specific roles and jobs. The role of a spammer, for example, is to create and send email messages with a link to the phishing site. Spammers often use botnets to send messages in bulk in a short period of time. Using botnets means spammers can hit the inboxes of a large number of people before anti-spam products latch onto the message within the spam and begin to filter for it. Another role in the community is that of cashier. These community members advertise their services in cashing out compromised bank accounts such as Wells Fargo accounts. Looking deeper, Harbert discovered that novice fishers are actually being scammed by advanced fishers. Those advanced fishers are writing and selling kits that include secret, obfuscated code that emails stolen information not only back to the primary fisher, but to the original fisher who sold him or her the kit in the first place. Harbert also discovered what he says is a new phishing variant, the storage of stolen information in flat text files. Besides emailing the information to fishers, the kits are also writing all data to text files in the directory of a given attack. Harbert found that those text files have common names. Those names are actually viewable on sites that report real-time phishing attacks, as does CloudMark. After writing a script to automatically retrieve the text files from such sites, Harbert was able to find PayPal account numbers from plain, flat text files, in other words, PayPal accounts in plain, unencrypted text. He thus obtained 15,000 PayPal accounts, including usernames and passwords, using no phishing techniques whatsoever, just a simple automated search on publicly available feeds. Harbert also discovered a new trend within the community, unique attacks for every victim. Kits that create unique scam URLs for each target are a highly desirable thing for fishers, 
given that they render the shutdown of a particular attack irrelevant. Another role in the community is that of the rip-off artist who steals from the fishers, called a ripper. Such an individual promises to cash out a compromised account, but instead just takes off with the money. In related news, large websites might be exposing your authentication tokens. Protection of the initial authentication process isn't enough to protect users from cross-site request forgery and other types of authentication token misuse. However, a large number of sites fail to protect authentication tokens throughout the user session, and this doesn't apply only to smaller sites. U.S. CERT reports that Google, Microsoft, and Yahoo also fail to safeguard this information. The following is from Vulnerability Note VU466433 that I found at the U.S. CERT site on 12 September 2007. Some websites transmit authentication material, often cookies, without encrypting the entire session, even when the authentication material is initially set over an encrypted HTTP session. This behavior could allow an attacker in the network path to obtain authentication material and impersonate a legitimate user. Sites that set authentication cookies over HTTPS during login and then later transmit the cookies over HTTP are particularly vulnerable, since users are more likely to think that the security of the login page applies to the entire session. So here are some workarounds for users. First, Accessing the website using encrypted HTTPS may mitigate this vulnerability. Note that the entire session, not just the initial username and password, will need to be encrypted. For this workaround to be completely effective, the secure attribute must be set on the cookie. Second, logging off from the web service may reduce the amount of time an attacker has to obtain credentials and exploit unprotected services. Third, users who can encrypt sensitive data locally by using PGP or NuPG, password-protected zip files, or other types of encryption before storing it on a website may be able to restrict what information an attacker can obtain by exploiting this vulnerability. Note that this workaround may not be feasible for all services offered by all vendors. And finally, Evaluate the risks of accessing vulnerable sites before using the services while connected to untrusted networks. And there's one workaround for vendors, which is provide the ability for users to access the site using HTTPS or a minimum only transmit authentication credentials over HTTPS. For this workaround to be completely effective, the secure attribute must be set on the cookie. Uh, section 4.2.2 of RFC 2109 can provide details for this. And in the final segment for this episode, we're going to take a look at attaining network-wide visibility. Knowing what's going on across the network is an important factor in security incident management. Without this capability, the detection piece of the process is weak or non-existent. Even networks with centralized IDS IPS capabilities might be less protected than expected due to the increase in packet payload encryption. In a paper published jointly by Microsoft Research and University of Michigan researchers, the use of ubiquitous in-system monitors is discussed as a possible way to see inside enterprise data pathways while overcoming packet encryption issues. The following is the ab- abstract from that paper. 
Network-centric tools like NetFlow and security systems like IDSs provide essential data about the availability, reliability, and security of network devices and applications. However, the increased use of encryption and tunneling has reduced the visibility of monitoring applications into packet headers and payloads. For example, 93% of traffic on our enterprise network is IPsec encapsulated. The result is the inability to collect the required information using network-only measurements. To regain the lost visibility, we propose that measurement systems must themselves apply the end-to-end principle. Only end systems can correctly attach semantics to traffic they send and receive. We present such an end-to-end monitoring platform that ubiquitously records per-flow data, and then we show that this approach is feasible and practical using data from our enterprise network. The conclusion that these researchers came to is as follows. We believe that network-centric monitoring approaches will continue to lose visibility into the network as traffic becomes more opaque and complex. Rather than directly instrument the network, we propose an end-to-end monitoring platform that uses data collected on end systems to construct a view of the network. End systems are able to provide significantly more visibility than network devices which lack critical host context. An end-to-end platform also enables many new applications like auditing of network resources, better data center management, capacity planning, network forensics, and anomaly detection. Our preliminary results using real data from an enterprise network show that collecting and querying data from end systems in a large network is both feasible and practical. The name of this paper is Reclaiming Network-Wide Visibility Using Ubiquitous End-System Monitors, and the link to that paper can be found in my blog post, which is again is entitled Attaining Network-Wide Visibility. Well, that's it for this week, and next week I'm going to, uh, besides a couple news articles, I'm actually going to uh, present a paper on uh desktop application virtualization and application streaming that I recently published and uh, that and it it's really slanted toward how we can provide better security for end user devices by uh, through the use of virtualization technology so again that's it for this week I hope I was able to help you make your network just a little bit more secure and until next week be careful what you click <laughs>